This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today, I have the great pleasure of introducing Dr. Kat Reddy and Nate Jones. They're the authors of the November lead article titled, Not Immune to Inequity, Minority Underrepresentation in Immunotherapy Trials for Breast and Gynecological Cancers. They're at the University of South Alabama in Mobile, Alabama. So, Kat, Nate. Welcome. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us, Pedro. We're excited to share our, our uh, research here. Well, thank you so much once again. I, uh, I wanted to first ask, and, and, and probably this question to, to you both, uh, I wanted to see and start by discussing how prevalent is the issue of racial inequity in healthcare delivery and outcomes in, in the United States? And if you can just tell us as to um, what do you think might be the reason for this inequity? So, um, yeah, it's a good question, and I don't think it'll come as a surprise to anyone listening that the uh, issue of racial inequity and in healthcare and delivery and outcomes is um, extremely prevalent and um, persistent over time. Um, it's an issue that's been studied and described quite extensively. Um, and I think the fact that we continue to publish papers describing these inequities um, in a, at a time that's so explosive for drug development and drug approvals um, is, is pretty concerning. Um, you know, we're seeing standard of care challenged on a variety of fronts, and we're seeing personalized uh, and precision um, medicine being marketed and, um, you know, to a variety of patients. Um, we're making huge leaps in cancer therapeutics, but, you know, many of the same inequities that existed 10 and 20 years ago um, still persist today, specifically in regards to um, the enrollment of these underrepresented populations in clinical trials. And in terms of your question about why these exist, well, it's definitely complicated, and that's the million-dollar question. But a couple of things that we need to keep in mind as we think about this is just the role of systemic racism in the United States in general. And medicine is no exception to that. Um, and also the role of unconscious bias in ourselves as providers mm. and inconsistencies and oversimplification of the role of race in overall health. Yeah. And Kat, you, you mentioned um, some really staggering numbers for rates of involvement of black patients in, in uh, 230, I believe, FDA trials for oncologic therapies. And, and also this expanded to, to studies by, in fact, our own GOG. Um, can you tell us a little bit more and expand on that? Yes. So those two publications were kind of the foundation or background, if you will, that led us to our particular question as it pertains to immunotherapy. So the um, publication about FDA approval, yes, you're right, 230 FDA trials. And what it was looking at was the actual trials that led to FDA approval. And in those only 3% of their 100,000 patients that were involved were actually black. Now, that looks at all cancers, uh, so oncologic therapy in general. But the GOG studies, uh, we looked at 445 publications involving 68,000 patients, and only 8% of those were black. And actually, in this, we found that participation of uh, black patients actually worsened over time. So between 1994 and 2002, 16% of patients were black, and in the 2009 to 2013 uh, time frame, only 6% were black. Yeah, this is really very, very impacting. Uh, 
Um, and, and certainly we're very, very uh, excited to talk to you about this as you bring light to, to this issue, um, and which brings me to, to the next question. And I think, uh, you know, certainly many reasons, but what do you think are, are the, the most important reasons to, to include minorities of, in any trial, not just immunotherapy trials? So, uh, you know, you're right. There are a, a variety of reasons. We're clearly not going to hit on all of them, but, you know, I think, you know, first and foremost, diversity in clinical trial enrollment um, can serve as a, a metric of social equality um, in regards to healthcare access, and you know, arguably, access to clinical tri trial um, in a lot of ways, I think, should be standard of care. Um, you know, it's 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 well known and well documented that biologic differences um, may determine differential efficacy of drugs in certain situations. Um, we know that genetic variation can be an important um, determinant of, you know, drug response, toxicity, you know, differential metabolism. Um, and trials need to be able to assess the differences in these, um, you know, these metabolism and, you know, perhaps even biomarker prevalence um, that, you know, affect the clinical outcomes based on um, racial differences. Um, in the U.S., this is, I think, particularly important where we have a very diverse population mm -hmm. where, you know, studies have documented survival differences uh, from cancer by um, race, even when controlling for socioeconomic and treatment differences. Um, you know, trial populations um, don't always represent the patients they intend, um, and that kind of threatens the external validity of the trial and makes the uh, trial results less uh, generalizable to the greater population and ultimately prevents minority uh, populations from benefiting from these you know, great scientific advances we're making. Yeah, absolutely, and and as you mentioned, the applicability of the findings to to that population. Um, so, Kat, what were the, what was the primary goal of uh, of the study? What we really wanted to do was just describe the representation of minority women in trials for immunotherapy in breast and gynecologic malignancies. And the reason we feel that this is important is because it's such a rapidly growing field. So small changes that we can make now in the way that we approach early phase trials can make a large difference in enrollment as well as outcome disparities as our understanding of those agents grows. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is uh, uh, embarking on, on quite a number of trials and obviously uh, amounting to a large number of patients. So can you tell us a little bit more about your, the study methodology and um, how did you gather the data And ultimately, what were your inclusion and exclusion criteria? So we started on clinicaltrials.gov using a variety of search terms. Of course, all of our different cancer sites, breast, ovarian, uterine, cervical cancer, uh, as well as the specific drug names, terms, immunotherapy. And then first, our initial check was just to make sure that it was actually looking at a immunologic agent. We then double-checked this with large reviews of immunotherapy to make sure that there weren't any gaps in what we had found. Mm -hmm. We didn't place any limitation on the year, or the country, the type of trial, or the phase of trial. And um, then we looked at the results either within clinicaltrials.gov or using publications when needed to supplement to make sure that we weren't um, leaving out any trials that had actually provided racial breakdown when at first it maybe didn't appear that they had. The only things that um, made us exclude a trial were if there was less than four patients or if perhaps the trial was looking at solid tumors and provided racial breakdown but didn't provide it within our cancer sites. 
uh, we couldn't actually use those uh, either. Yeah. So massive undertaking. And um, how many trials did you review? And, and ultimately, what was the total number of patients that were involved? We reviewed about 300, and of those, 53 made the cut in terms of uh, being applicable to what we really wanted to answer, and that involved about 9,000 patients, and race was reported in 41 of those studies, so 77% of studies, and that involved about 7,000 patients. Amazing. And just as a, as a rough estimate, uh, how much time did it take you to do all of this? Oh, Hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of hours. <laughs> I figured exactly. <laughs> so it, um, it was painful at times. I could imagine, uh, but obviously uh, we we were very interested in the in the results. So, what were the results of your study, and and what would you like to highlight to the audience as the main findings? Well, as I mentioned, uh, 41 of the 53 trials, so 77%, uh, included race reporting, which is pretty consistent with uh, previous publications in terms of, of uh, race reporting. And that included 7,200 patients. And when you looked at our, our cohort, the breakdown was 70% white patients, 20% Asian, 6% other, and 5% black. So Asian races, or excuse me, um, Asian patients mm -hmm. exceeded black enrollment in 25, so 61% of trials, and other races exceeded black enrollment in 20 of those trials, or 49%. Breast cancer actually had the highest enrollment of black patients. So what we did is after we looked at, at all everything together, we broke it down to kind of understand where the um, where the majority of those patients were coming from, and enrollment of patients in in breast cancer trials is six percent for black patients. But if you looked at GYN cancers altogether, so uterine, breast, excuse me, uterine, cervical, and um, ovarian, that was only two percent of patients. So after we had looked at the actual enrollment of patients, we wanted to see how to estimate what the um, expected enrollment should be. So we used the CDC age-adjusted incidence for race and compared actual to expected enrollment and found that although enrollment was low for both Black and Asian patients, that discrepancy was a lot larger in um, among Black patients. So it was 32-fold lower for ovarian cancer, 19-fold lower for cervical cancer, 15-fold lower for uterine cancer, and 11-fold for breast cancer. And, of course, all of those were statistically significant as well. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, the, these numbers are, are very impacting. And uh, as, uh, as you know, some of the fellows in our journal are international. And as they read this, they, they, this was uh, uh, obviously something that really struck out to them, you know, con concerning uh, the low rates of involvement of these minority patients in the, in the studies. Um, so, Nate, I wanted to ask you also, I think that in, the, in your results section, you mentioned that data on pembrolizumab, obviously one of the most widely used immunotherapies in uh, gynecologic cancers today, yet it seems that there were not too many patients that participated in those trials that were actually black. Um, what were those numbers and, and why not? What do you think happened there? 
you know, this is this is an issue close to my heart. You know, we have a very large number of uh, black patients we treat here, a lot with, you know, high-risk histologies and few options for second-line, you know, chemotherapy. Um, and many of my patients have asked this question, you know, you know, what, what do you recommend for me? And it's a hard, it's a hard discussion to have with them because um, these trials were performed in white women, you know, and, and there's a lot of trials looking at, you know, uh, response rates in black women. Um, and if you look at those subsets, why not, while not statistically significant, they do have worse outcomes yet. We still, because the FDA approved it, you know, um, it, you know, we, we generalize those to these black patients. So, you know, this is one of the, the things I was really interested in looking at. Um, you know, 19 of the trials um, had pembrolizumab for a total of about 2,500 patients. Um, there were 339 black patients, uh, 1,436 Asian patients. So that's about 5% um, were black. Um, however, almost all of those black patients were actually in breast cancer trials. And a total of seven black patients were in the GYM malignancies in studies, you know, looking at GYM malignancies. So that's the cervix, the uterine, um, and the ovarian patients, which is, um, you know, very, very striking, very sad in my opinion. Yeah. No, um, and, and, and the question of why, you know, it's, it's a million dollar question and one that we can't really answer with, with this data, you know, I think there's a lot of questions we need to be asking. Um, we just got to figure out how to get that information, but, you know, questions of who was actually screened for these trials, how many minorities were approached, um, where were these trials open and what were the regional enrollment numbers um, and patient characteristics, you know, who failed screening and why did they fail? Um, you know, we know that black women have baseline vital and, and lab differences oftentimes, um, we know that a lot of these cutoffs are established during the early phase trials. And if, you know, minority women aren't part of the early phase trials that set standards for enrollment or toxicity or response, then they're more likely to fail um, in the screening process or more likely to have, you know, unexpected adverse events. Um, and in my opinion, those, those trials, you know, failed them from the very start. Um, and then we end up with treatments designed for a very specific demographic um, and, and racial makeup in which black women are, are not included, unfortunately. Yeah. And, um, and as you mentioned, this is uh, really important information. And particularly when, you know, as you, as you said, when, when you're counseling your patients about the, uh, the projected outcomes that often this is not really in, in a, in a racial group uh, that, that, that would include those patients. So very, very important point. Um, mm -hmm. Now you, you, you also mentioned, and of course I'm, you know, often, the assumption is, well, why wouldn't it, why would the outcomes be different? But, you know, you mentioned how for other drugs like antihypertensives or diuretics and anticoagulants, these are tailored often uh, in some way according to the findings from those studies based on race. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and, and the importance of this? Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's a little bit of a slippery slope, too. And, you know, I don't think anybody, we're not trying to, you know, simplify, um, you know, cancer response rates or toxicity down to biology alone, because we know that's likely only a small part of it. But, you know, there is evidence from other, you know, medical conditions, um, and, you know, and possibly even response to immune therapies that have been documented uh, based on, um, you know, differential responses based on race. And actually the, you know, American Heart Associ Association recommends stricter control 
uh, lower thresholds um, and, and dual therapy with um, calcium channel blockers and thiazide diuretics for uh, for black patients. Um, you know, the FDA recommends genetic testing for Asian patients prior to initiation of um, carbamazepine because of a higher risk of Stevens-Johnson syndrome. Um, for warfarin, it's been suggested that there, you know, that perhaps warfarin dosing protocols should differ, differ you know, among races. Um, and I, you know, I think this may be one component to, you know, help address um, maybe just a, a portion of the disparities in the outcomes we see um, for minority populations. Yeah. And, and Kat, what would you say if, uh, if you were to say, well, the, these are the limitations that we have to recognize uh, of our study? What would you say those would be? Well, I think the most important one is something that we've kind of uh, danced around in some of the last couple of questions, but we there's so few patients, we can't actually comment on whether or not the outcomes were different, but that just kind of begs the question, strengthens our point that obviously we need to start doing this from the beginning and when we're designing clinical trials, bringing this into account so that we can answer that question. Um, and another limitation was we were not able to look at Hispanic, Alaskan Native, or American Indian patients because the reporting of those particular races was not consistent uh, throughout the studies. Yeah, and, and that would be also a very interesting information to have. Um, now, the, the next question comes from one of our fellows, Sarah Nasser in uh, Charité in uh, Germany. And I'd like to hear both of your opinions about this. She, she mentions that um, white women are more likely to enroll in studies compared to minority peers. Um, what first is the, why do you think this might be the case? And, and I think we alluded to this a little bit before. Um, but then she adds, could this be uh, some element, some component of the fact that black women and other minorities don't feel comfortable enrolling in clinical trials? Yes, Absolutely. You know, the Tuskegee trial ended less than 50 years ago, so many of our patients could reasonably have had relatives that were involved in that trial. Yeah, that and, and, and again, it's hard to just pin one thing, you know, on this, you know, lack of, of trust of the medical system or feeling comfortable. You know, I think um, it, it, it's hard, you know, agents make up 70% of the or sorry, 17% of the physician's workforce, and I think like less than 5% um, of the physician workforce is made up of black physicians compared to 60 to 70% white. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think it is hard for black patients to feel comfortable without having, you know, without being represented um, in medicine um, and could contribute to their, you know, lack of comfort in, in these clinical settings. Yeah. And um, and one of the other things that, and I think you alluded to a little bit, uh, Natalia Rodriguez from Spain asked that you mentioned there may be an increase in, in study participation by Asians, uh, but not by black patients. Um, why do you think this might be the case for that particular population? Well, unfortunately, with the data that we have so far, that just isn't clear, but Hopefully, one of the things that's one of the things that we'll be able to answer as we become more proactive about improving minority enrollment with some of the things that uh, Nate had talked about. So, looking at women who failed screening and why they failed um, at any particular level of trial enrollment. Yeah, 
And in, in, um, a follow-up question to that, Eric Estrada, uh, he's uh, from um, Guatemala. Um, he, he actually brings up uh, an interesting point. He says, you know, certainly the ability to recruit diversity patient populations has been limited uh, often because uh, the sources of patients in trials have been largely confined to what he calls the elite academic medical centers. Do you consider that a more diverse patient population would be engaged by expanding your trials to places where we can potentially recruit more of these minority patients? Yes, absolutely. And uh, this actually is the part that I'm really interested in is looking at these evidence-based strategies that can help to improve um, a diverse enrollment, uh, a diverse cohort. And I know that uh, University of South Alabama and Mitchell Cancer Institute is very interested in that as well. There's actually a really good review on this by Bong et al. Um, it's titled Overcoming Barriers, Evidence-Based Strategies to Increase Enrollment of Underrepresented Populations in Cancer Therapeutic Clinical Trials. Um, and they, they really talk about three main things that you can do to improve the diversity of your cohort. And one is having culturally appropriate education and marketing materials. But again, that requires us to have data about how different populations are affected uh, by the, by cancers and treatment as well. Um, the use of patient navigators has been shown to be effective. And I think Dr. Jones can talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Um, and then also uh, capitalizing on community partnerships. So literally meeting the patients where they are in churches, community centers, where there's already a bit of established trust uh, that you can use to help get patients, uh, to help reach those particular patients. Yeah, those are really interesting points, and particularly the element that uh, you uh, highlight, the trust, uh, obviously very, very important. Um, now, the, the next question, again, comes from Eric. He's also, again, interested in, in how to increase uh, the recruitment. Uh, he, he asked, do you consider using modern consumer marketing approaches and social media to reach and engage patients? He mentions this is a strategy that has already been used by the Follicular Lymphoma Foundation. Uh, this is direct to consumer marketing. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is it's it's a great thought, and I think um, um, one that we have is actually being looked at here at our cancer center. Um, you know, it, it it does require some resources. Um, you know, we down here in the deep south, you know, our you know one of the other issues is rurality um, of our patients and the you know the inability of our patients to to um, or for us to, to to reach them with with some of these uh, traditional marketing approaches. So. Um, we, we have looked at that, um, and I think that needs to be part of our, you know, one part of our strategy. Um, you know, most of our approaches up to this point have been in person with these um, churches, community centers, um, you know, in, in person meetings. Um, and then with our past patient navigators, we have had great success with minority enrollment um, using these uh, in person strategies with, um, you know, navigators that, that mirror our population here. Yes, and that's an excellent point, uh, the patient navigators. Um, and um, this uh, this next question comes from Emma Allison. She's from Australia. Um, and she asked, this information is critical when considering the planning of trials. So her question is primarily about, like, what are we as investigators doing? Um, and she asked, what advice do you have for researchers at the outset of trial development to assure 
that this doesn't keep happening? <laughs> so I'm relatively early in my career, so I'm going to be careful about giving advice to uh, my more experienced <laughs> colleagues. Um, but um, I, I do think it's important to, you know, just as the most basic of things, set goals for, my, for um, set goals for minority participation, um, not just overall recruitment numbers. Um, and I think, you know, you sort of touched on this before. These trials have got to be opened in the regions where the, the patients most affected have the most to gain, meaning that we need to bring these trials to the patients rather than, you know, bringing the patients to, to us. Um, you know, we need to be mindful when setting exclusion criteria and how it may differentially affect, um, you know, patients of different races. And these trials need to be powered to be able to stratify these these outcomes based on race. I don't, I can't remember the last time I saw a trial where, you know, we had, um, you know, outcomes based on race and any sort of, you know, differential, you know, response rates, um, at least in, in, in the GYN malignancies, it's just not there. And um, they're not powered to, to, to show that either, but I think that's a very important um, next step. Yeah. And another question from Emma along the same lines of increasing uh, recruitment um, she asked, you know, certainly approaches to improve equity in areas such as education has included minority-specific scholarships as an example. Do you think that we can take some form of initiative approaches or incentivizing uh, in healthcare, similar to that in the uh, education, um, to improve access to trials? Yes, I do think that that could be an important step, especially when the cost of a therapy is high. And I think it's also important to keep in mind that cost may not only be financial. Things like time, um, family, all of those things can uh, place stress on a patient. And I think that's where the patient navigators are extremely important in navigating. And I think a lot of those, can can be different based on you know um, different communities, different regions, and um, you know diff different demographics, different different um, racial uh, you know makeups as well. Yeah, and absolutely, and as you mentioned, and when looking at the demographics and the uh, and the regions, and I often find also culturally it's uh, it's very different, and and you know for us when uh, looking back at when we were um, running the the lag trial. Um, Patients in the United States, minority patients in the United States, viewed being enrolled in a clinical trial very differently from patients in Latin America, uh, where, mm. where certainly in Latin America they felt that this was going to be obviously a way to obtaining superior care because you are part of a clinical trial. And often that's not the, the case that was shared by, uh, by patients in, in the United States of, uh, of Hispanic um, origin. Um, so I wanted to... Um, Get back to the point of, you know, moving forward. How do we how do we uh, make a change? And and the the next question actually was from several of our fellows, and they kind of coincided on the on the same point. Um, what specific measures in your institution um, have you implemented to hopefully increase the uh, enrollment in, in clinical trials of blacks and minorities? I think we touched on a couple of these before, um, but you know, I, and you did make a very good point just just a moment ago. I, I do think we should change what we we should not call them clinical trials. I feel like that has a very negative connotation. I'm not exactly sure what we should refer to them as, but I do think we should approach them as 
you know, I always have to explain to my patients, you know, the majority of time it's either standard of care or standard of care plus, hmm. you know, something else and, and really make them understand that. But clinical trial doesn't, it has a lot of negative connotation, you know, um, historically. Um, but, you know, the other one is patient navigators, you know, you know, patients have asked or colleagues have asked me, you know, multiple times how we get our trial numbers where we do. And I can't take any credit for it because I feel like by the time they get to me, and I discuss clinical trials, they are fairly open to it, um, as long as I don't call it a clinical trial, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're, they're fairly open to the idea of, of trying to, um, you know, trying to, to, to you know, push, push things forward. And I, you know, I, I try to talk them into that and saying they're part of something bigger here um, and that, you know, I don't feel comfortable um, sitting back and accepting um, standard of care with suboptimal outcomes for our, you know, minority populations, that it's really our job um, and our responsibility to these patients to really um, challenge the standard of care and set new standards of care for, for our minority patients. So I think that's sort of the, the, um, the culture that we work in down here and our, our patients are, are very motivated and excited to, to be part of that as well. That's great, and Nate, extremely well said. And, uh, Kat, any other uh, closing comments you would like to make? Well, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity. I know it's something that Nate and I both feel really passionate about, and um, and I can't believe that I was shocked by some of the numbers that we came up with. But, I mean, especially when, when you think about pembrolizumab and the fact that we only have information from seven black women um, in the GYN malignancy realm, that is obviously something that um, we need to change. Well, I want to thank you both again for, for bringing light to this issue. Uh, this was really something that um, everyone in the, in the team really felt it was a, a very a powerful message. And uh, congratulations to you both for all the time, effort, and, and to the rest of the members of, of your team as well, obviously, for all the time and effort uh, put into this work. And again, for continuing to provide um, guidance for us as to how do we uh, make a change in, in this arena. So thank you very, very much. All right. Thank you, Pedro. Thanks for this opportunity. Thank you. I really appreciate it.